Steve Hotham, and thanks for joining us on Sandy Day. Um, in the room here with me, we've got um, both staff and members of the Planning Commission um, who are part of an ad hoc committee. And then we'll have uh, another staff member, Cece Riley, joining us um, a little bit later. She's in another meeting. So I'm going to ask everybody to do a quick introduction and then probably try to just jump right into asking you questions if you're, if you're good with that. I think I can do that, yeah. Okay, great. Um, I'm going to start with Gary. Hey, Steve. I'm Gary Rexroad, a um, member of this group that's uh, working on writing these regulations. Thanks for being here. Hey, Steve. I'm Prashant. Uh, I'm Prashant. Uh, I'm also a member of the commission and excited to learn from you and, you know, so we can do the right thing. Thank you. Hi, Steve. I'm Becky Pepper, and I'm with the planning department here. Hey, uh, Ellen Mullins, I'm also with the planning department. I'm just talking out with today. And also on the screen, we have Mike Kelso. Steve, I'm Mike Kelso. I am a, another member of the planning commission and trying to learn as much as we can so we can get this done right. So thanks again for, for joining us. Um, would you take a couple minutes, Steve, and, and kind of tell us a little bit about your background, Black and Beach, and your work with, with Windtower? Sure. So yeah, I'm uh, Steve Block with Black and & Veatch, and I've uh, been working in the, the wind development support space, um, gosh, since about 2006, and um, primarily working with, you know, in this, in this capacity, at least working with regulated utilities, and, and to some lesser extent working with uh, independent developers on developing their wind farms. And so kind of part of the broader team at Black & Veatch, um, I know you've met quite a few of them last week, uh, Dusty Miller and, and, and others, uh, working to support the development and um, kind of siting and permitting and everything else related to utility-scale wind farms uh, all over the U.S. Not, not just the U.S., but that's primarily my experience. So I led the Black & Veatch um, kind of wind energy development, um, production analysis, siting, and um, and kind of layout optimization teams until about two years ago. At, at this stage, I now manage the uh, teams at Black and Beach that do wind and solar uh, performance assessment, but I still support wind development activities as well, just given my experience. Thank you so much. I'm gonna kind of hand the baton off to Gary and let him kind of run the show and um, we'll we'll just keep going. All right. So yeah, this there, the three of us will. I hope is just a really active conversation. And I just as we have in the past, guys, um, anytime, anywhere, please jump in with thoughts and questions. And and Steve, um, I'd ask you to participate as well. Um, if uh, you see that there's directions that we might go, if you can you can tell that as we ask questions that maybe we need to flesh things out another one way or another, please help guide us with that. Um, okay. A bunch of folks that are chartered with uh, writing these regs, and we're doing the very best we can to learn about it. But as you know, it's a it's a complex field. It it, it is, and I appreciate that. So I'll I'll do my best to you know, jump in and provide um, kind of some of my insight or understanding where I can. Uh, examples of what I have seen. I I will not say I've seen everything because been very focused in certain parts of the country for better or worse 
And I know that there's areas that you know, they might do things differently that I have less experience with. If I don't know something, I will you know, let you know, but do my very best to kind of provide what, what insight and support I can. So let me start by just kind of fleshing out some of the areas we could maybe uh, dive into as we think about regulations. There's a couple of key topics that are oftentimes um, a part of a reg and, and have some measurable with them. Um, setbacks, of course, is one. Sound um, is one. Uh, flicker and glint. Um, tower height um, are examples. What am I missing? Um, are there other areas, Steve, besides those four that that you that you contemplate or you wish people did contemplate when they're writing regs? The primary ones, the starting point is definitely going to be setbacks and making sure those setbacks are achievable and reasonable for the area. So we have to consider not just kind of the setbacks in isolation, but also how they relate to the size of you know, technology these days and also how the land is used and how settled. Um, so, and I don't know the exact nature of, or of, of the you know, land use in the area that that you govern, but um, as an example to that, in most much of the Midwest, uh, that is, you know, gridded roads on a one-mile grid, we have significant challenges with, you know, balancing development and homeowners. While out west, you're here in Colorado or up in Wyoming, where I've done a bunch of work, that's almost a non-issue. We have to consider it. We have to be careful about it. But I can have a county in Wyoming say, I need a full mile setback from wind turbines for many houses, and we might be able to make that work. It's extreme, but we might be able to make that work. If you said even a half mile in Iowa, it's impossible. It's just literally impossible. So we have to make sure that's balanced, but setbacks, absolutely. Um, and then you absolutely sound and shadow flicker are critical items have to be addressed, have to be reasonable, but also, you know, make it possible to develop a project, but also protect the, you know, residents, homeowners, businesses, people in the community. So there's always a balance to be found there. Yeah. And I think sound, shadow flicker, um, and setbacks are the, are really the keys. Obviously there's, you mentioned height. I think height's worth, it needs to be considered, but we need to be careful about that. I think we can have a discussion about that as we go here uh, with okay. a little bit more detail. Good. And obviously environmental permitting, and I would defer to my colleagues like Dusty Miller for any comments on environmental and permitting. And we did quite a bit of uh, that work when we were together a couple weeks ago. That's what year. I understood. Yeah, that's what I understood. Unfortunately, right. I, was, I was out of the office last week. So is there... Is there, a, a, you know, you talked about the, the difference in, in maybe Eastern Colorado, Western Kansas, you know, open fields uh, uh, versus an area like we have in Douglas County, which is almost all one mile grid roads. Yeah, there's, there's, a, there's, certainly, there's certainly a lot of that. And um, the way that's described by many is uh, the density of, of population in Douglas County is quite a bit higher for the size of the county. I think they said they were like they were the fifth smallest county with the fifth highest population. Right. Is there a is there a is there any math around or way to think about when density gets to X 
place that it just becomes um, too difficult to adequately provide for the industry while still protecting? In my experience, there's no obvious math. I think it's more of a uh, regulations need to make sense and be reasonable. And then the math kind of follows from there. I don't mean to like sound too vague on that, but what I'm, what I'm trying to say is for a setbacks perspective, the setbacks required for safety reasons, which is the prime reason for setbacks, in my opinion, are relatively small and they won't achieve a true balance um, between the land ownership and development possibilities. So from just a safety perspective, setbacks for, you know, wind turbines, we've got guidelines for, you know, road setbacks, depending on how heavily used the roads are, that I can you know, elaborate on and guidelines for house setbacks and overhead utilities and similar. Um, the only one that I recommend going over the sort of baseline safety requirements is house setbacks. And that's because they flow into the other aspects you mentioned, particularly noise and shadow flicker. Right. So I think for protecting residences and protecting landowners, it, it is mostly about where people live and to a lesser extent where people work, but primarily where people live. And it's about not being a nuisance rather than it being kind of safety oriented. So setbacks, I think, should be established and put in place from kind of a safety and, and, and protection standpoint. Um, and then built on top of that, then the other aspects you mentioned, the, the noise so aspect, the shadow flicker aspect. So we've, uh, we've read a lot of regulations and, and when we think about setbacks, um, there, there is a, a common number, probably about half of them, 1,500 feet as a setback number, oftentimes from a property line. Um, is there anything magic about that number? Why, why does that number show up so often? It's not magic. It's, it's kind of a, it's a compromise number that's been found to be effective in these kind of one-mile grid areas. So the, the base values used to be, um, and particularly setbacks to homes, you know, it started a thousand feet and then you know, maybe a thousand feet for participants and a quarter mile for non-participants. Um, as the machines have gotten bigger, we've looked into that and there became something of a rule of thumb in the industry of a three times total tip height setback. And because most turbines were being built at 500 feet or lower, that three times total tip height setback kind of settled on 1500 feet. You know, 1320 or a quarter mile is a round number. Uh, 1,500 feet is a round number. Um, so a lot of times people like to settle on round numbers that that are reasonable on the whole. Um, okay. So if we're talking about like a minimum setback for a residence, uh, a quarter mile would be the lowest I would allow. And the reason for that is as the turbines get bigger, the also very low risk, but the risk of particularly like ice throw in the winter uh, goes up with the size of the machine in terms of the maximum distance that uh, it could fall. And so by the time we're talking about some of these modern turbines, we're talking that's already about 1,200 feet. Um, so 1,320 is a minimum that is almost always achievable. 1,500 yeah. is almost always achievable. 
another number you might occasionally see is about um, to double check the math, but about 1640. It's 500 meters is another setback. That's usually achievable, but it's starting to push um, kind of push things once you start adding in other setbacks. And all these that I'm mentioning are with respect to residences. So from the nearest wall of the residence or potentially from small parcel boundaries. Almost every regulation I have ever seen is from the nearest wall of a residence. Um, for property setbacks, so not, not residential setbacks, but property setbacks specifically to farmland that's not participating, I strongly recommend that they not be uh, thought of in the same way as a residential setback. What I what I mean is I have seen more than one project with uh, like a quarter mile setback to non-participant property. The end. That's how it's written. What that does is that takes a single 80 acre parcel in a um, typical, like, you know, one square mile radius. Single 80 acre parcel can almost remove an entire section of land from even being considered. Once you add in home setbacks around the perimeter and you add in wildlife setbacks, wetland setbacks. And in reality, you have to think about what are you protecting? So a setback that large for you know, a field of corn or wheat or soy or whatever else might be being grown isn't really protecting anyone. Now this could be a challenge because public perception may vary or differ on that, but that's just been my experience. So for non-participant like farmland or industrial land or similar, um, I would recommend something much more along the lines of a turbine height or a turbine height plus a small buffer or um, you know, otherwise sort of the minimum would be no overhang, but uh, that's pretty small buffer. And I would recommend full turbine height plus a 10% buffer for 110% in some yep. places. Yeah, and that's a reasonable compromise. So a 500 foot turbine would need to be 550 feet from a non-participant property. Uh, in the event of a catastrophic failure, the likelihood of impacting that non-participant property is still nearly zero. Um, and, you know, to be very honest with you, crops don't, aren't bothered by wind turbines. So protecting the crops from that perspective is not, not really beneficial. It's, that becomes more of a perception argument rather than a beneficial or non-beneficial argument. Hay ground is different down than cropland. Sorry? Hay ground is different than cropland. From a, from and, a protect, from a, if say you've got a catastrophic failure and you're only at 110%, uh, particles that get into that hay, what is that non-participant owner supposed to do with with particles that are now in his, in his or her field that they don't want their animals grazing on or they don't want wrapped up in their hay for the next year? A fair question. That's not a question that I've uh, addressed in the past. I don't really have a what I consider a good answer for you there. Um, and, I and think it's, that it's, is... Sorry to interrupt. And the re this one's fresh in our memory because in, and I don't know if you're aware of the recent failure up in Marshall County where they uh, next era the business is still telling us they don't know what happened it looks looks to be like it was a lightning strike and <laughs> and fiberglass particles went way farther than the setbacks and went into non-participants hay fields which um, 
as a as, as someone that raises cattle, cattle I think could probably handle small particles. They shouldn't have to because it shouldn't be in there. But to me, other animals such as horses, if if a horse consumed, I'm going to say something the size of your thumbnail, it could kill them because if you look at a horse wrong, they could lay over and die. Um, sheep and and goats, I don't know, Prasant in the room there has has sheep and obviously would be concerned about his sheep ingesting uh, the fibroblast particles. So that, that is a big concern. It's a, uh, uh, because this just happened, it's a big concern to a lot of the non-participants around Douglas County. Yeah. That might be one that we would need to maybe get some additional insight from um, others who are, and maybe have more experience with that specifically, because my experience, that's I've never seen that directly addressed in a regulation in the past. And I uh, don't know that I've talked with owners or landowners who raise cattle, because I've been on plenty of wind farms that are on ranches, of course, uh, that that's come up. So it's it's a fair question. I just, I don't have a good answer for you. I'm right. sorry. That, I, I, that's valid. So outside of that, uh, a failure like that, and I'm not dismissing that because that's, you know, that's very real. We've got an example of it just down the road. Um, set that aside for a minute, um, normal operating conditions. Um, how, how does, uh, talk about noise for just a little bit. Um, looking at different regs that are out there. Um, conversation we had with your team, um, asked the question about 45 dBA um, at a property line and, and or from, from whatever the measure point was, 45 dBA would 1,500 feet provide um, uh, adequate setback to accomplish that. They, do you have an opinion on that? For a single wind turbine of typical design uh, as of today, yes. Uh, for multiple wind turbines, for a full wind farm, that would need, that is, the noise regulation needs to be written and then the developer and, and or their consultants would need to model that and evaluate it and most likely also field test that after construction. So 1,500 feet for the most part for most machines, yes. Uh, a quarter mile for most machines is sufficient for 45 decibels uh, at a residence. Okay. But it's cumulative, right? So you put 100 wind turbines, you've got, you know, they, they do interact with each other. Um, do prevailing winds have an impact on how that sound carries day and night? I presume it might. They do, but I'm not the expert on exactly how much. Um, Jeff Samansky, I think you probably talked with last week would yeah i didn't ask that question didn't yeah. have failed to ask that um do you know though um if the uh, wind studies that are done um, include prevailing winds they do um for the sound studies i think wind is often excluded as in uh, wind is typically a masking sound uh, when it's well mixed wind and then of course at nighttime we end up with the situation where the wind is higher turbine height lower ground level which is a different scenario so i believe the way the modeling is done um doesn't necessarily 
consider wind, but it is done on a worst case scenario with a uncertainty buffer on top of that uh, in terms of turbine output. And uh, Jeff Szymanski is absolutely the expert to weigh, you know, weigh in on how re good regulation should be written. Appreciate that, Steve. Um, I want to sh shift again to talk about liquor and Flint. Um, we've had some uh, testimony given uh, that Flint uh, no longer exists. Um, do you agree with that or do you have a different perspective? I think it's uncommon. I know that I haven't been in a situation that I've seen it myself. Uh, not the way we would on a, like a solar installation where we're concerned about how it affects you know, airports and similar with you know, the glass panels. Uh, the coatings on the machines typically are you know, semi-gloss to semi-matte. And uh, I know that I've not seen in any recent years any regulation, modeling, or analysis of Gwent. Um, so for the most part, I don't see it addressed in projects I've worked in. Um, I don't know that I could say definitively that it no longer exists. Okay. Flicker, though, is still a thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, we've, we've learned that there's combinations of technology and siding and operating practices that can reduce flicker on any given point to zero. Um, we're considering that as uh, a requirement of these regulations. Uh, I see in a lot of them, though, that a lot of regulations they they say 30 hours annually it's is that is that just the, that 30 hours annually is that just the average amount of flicker that any one place is going to get um, so the way the regulations kind of were developed and the way they're typically implemented they were developed originally in europe and there were some studies i can't remember the years but it was quite a long time ago uh that pointed to 30 hours of flicker impact at a residence, usually indoors, was sort of the threshold between it being a minor inconvenience to being a true nuisance. Uh, and it's something that has historically been achievable for a wind farm through siting alone to, to achieve. Um, so it became something of a, we have a couple studies that point to this being a good number and we have the reality of how big these things are. Um, and we have this balance we can actually achieve in practice um, with a little bit of work. So 30 hours has been something of the basis. 30 hours annually plus 30 hours per day is how that's typically worded. Not sorry, not 30 hours annually plus 30 minutes per day, as in any given day, no more than 30 minutes any given year, no more than 30 cumulative hours. Um, as machines get bigger, uh, and this is more of a function of rotor than tower height, although they both um, kind of work together on this. But as machines get bigger, achieving that through siting alone becomes much more difficult, particularly when we have additional you know, constraints for other setbacks. Because um, as we find, as we add additional setbacks, as we add additional regulations, requirements, the pool of land from a given area that can host a wind turbine gets smaller and smaller. And so that less, leaves less flexibility, um, at which point we're talking about implementing controls. So while a turbine will always cast shadows, if the sun is out, 
we can control whether those shadows are just shadows or whether those shadows are moving. And the moving part is what is the nuisance. Um, to your point on the zero hour limit, I have seen it. I've also seen variance, 10 hours, two hours, um, almost always applied to non-participants. Yeah. You usually participants are sort of given the, well, you're, you're getting paid and therefore this is a trade you are willing to make at which point, you know, the 30 hour limit is what I typically see applied in that scenario where we're talking about a zero hour limit, uh, a zero hour limit to achieve must be implemented through controls. There is no sighting way to do it. It's not physically possible. Not, not for the type of land we're talking about with gridded roads and houses on most mm. of them. It's, it's just a single machine in the middle of that one mile section will cast shadows. So, um, it must be controls. Good news there is that almost all the major vendors offer control solutions. Um, the ones that don't, there are third party solutions that can be implemented. Um, it, in, the, in the places, Steve, where you've seen zero uh, regulations for non participating in your experience, has that been effective? Is there, is that, uh, did it, did it, did it prohibit industry or? It, it did not. With it? it did not prohibit industry, but it is a challenge for a fairly windy area with local power prices being relatively high, relatively being you know three to four cents a kilowatt hour. Um, when it's known about up front and planned for up front, does not prohibit development. Um, where energy prices are much lower, it can simply make, or where wind speeds are lower, it can simply make a site less attractive. It does not prevent development, um, but what we have seen is, depending on the control system or similar, if um, if it's simply implemented at all hours that it could happen, um, if there's no provision for sunniness in the uh, curtailment requirements, then it can be a significant impact, 15%, 20%, depending on the site. And this so interplays- Help me with the math on that. Yeah. Um, there's a limit of 30 minutes per day. Um, that 30 minutes per day is way less than 15% of the total amount of time in a day. Right. So how can how can it cost fifteen percent of total um, generation capacity yeah. if that's really the the window? Because that's that's at an individual home, and if you imagine a wind turbine somewhere in this in a field, and then ten homes along the road to the east, because um, it follows the, the sun. time of year, it it'll hit it'll hit you know one house for Not a certain yet. number of days, and those shadows will kind of move along the path until. <laughs> It's a cumulative impact because um, every residence needs to, you know, be protected and meet that same same level. So, while it's obviously for an individual house and an individual machine, much less than fifteen percent, for a cumulative wind farm, it could be significant. What we've actually seen in practice, is, and this is a Michigan reference, um, which similar, not the same, obviously as as Kansas, but uh, site with about 12 or 13% curtailment because, and this is a, uh, call it a transition period thing. 
they were waiting on the turbine vendor to provide them the full implementation, the full imp implementation, which included accounting for um, sunniness. And that's effectively done in most situations with uh, sensors on the wind turbines, sensors that can detect, you know, whether the turbine is casting a shadow on itself. Yeah. And um, so if it's cloudy, they're allowed to operate. And in Michigan, that's significant. Much of the, you know, heaviest impact times a year tend to be like March, April, May, uh, depending on exactly how things are cited. And in Michigan specifically, those tend to be the cloudiest months. So the impact in reality is much lower once the more advanced controls are available. But this owner being cautious uh, took the initial schedule, which is pre-calculated, and we know where the sun is, we know where the wind turbines are. And simply through the control system, shut down every time a wind turbine was going to otherwise violate the requirements. Uh, we did more recent studies for more recent wind farms in the same region and calculated both the likely and maximum requirements. And in operations for this wind farm, which also, this is also a difference in setbacks. First wind farm had 50 decibel noise requirements, had a thousand foot house setbacks. And the developer who developed it exploited that to its full potential uh, against my recommendation, but that separate conversation. Um, the second wind farm my client developed directly and they are much more cautious um, because they are a regulated utility and they feel a sense of community and ownership that maybe an independent developer wouldn't. Uh, so they proactively implemented full shutdown. And then in the new site, we had the software that was measuring light levels and measuring shadow casting. And we're predicting about a 3% annual loss. And a 3% annual loss, if known about upfront, is not a critical factor. Is that, in a, is that in a gridded area? It is. Right. West of Saginaw, Michigan, in flat, very flat, very few trees, farmland. So... On the limitations, I would absolutely recommend a minimum of the 30-hour, 30 30-minute 30 limits I mentioned at any residence, um, at the wall of the residence at, at, as sort of a basis. And then for non-participants, you know, zero hours, like I said, is achievable, can be done. I've also seen two hours, 10 hours. Uh, again, those are usually written as at the wall of the residence. I have seen some attempts to make that at property lines. And I understand the reasoning. If you are considering that for the zero hour limits, I recommend being very careful. Um, I recommend that because occasionally, so in my experience, the majority of homes are on say a three acre or a 10 acre parcel uh, within a larger overall um, land breakdown. But there are homes that are on the full 80 or even a 160. Um, and if we write regulation relative to the property line, we're going well beyond the yard into the farm field. And uh, requiring like a any kind of shadow flicker limit on cropland is, is prohibitive in, in, in general. And it's not protecting, not really protecting anyone. Um, so one way I've seen the compromise there at the wall of the house is what I see most often. Another compromise I've seen is say a hundred feet from the wall of the house, which would cover most yard areas, except on very large yards. 
that's something maybe that's balanced based on what the land use actually looks like in the county, which I, I don't know. Um, in practice, flicker is most annoying indoors where it's where the light is like behind me coming through a small window and the shadows blocking that window. And so you end up with a more of a strobing effect outdoors with global illumination from the sun. It is observable, but it is, it, at least in my opinion, much less of a nuisance. So protection should be focused primarily on indoor shadow flicker and shadow flicker, particularly because where we see that where I have seen the most complaints and worked through the most mitigation work is is definitely within the house, say six in the morning or 7.30 at night when people are having breakfast, getting ready for their day, when they're occupying the house, when they are you know, in a room and they're in the, in the dining room with east facing window and trying to have breakfast, read the newspaper and it is coming through the window. So that's where it's most disruptive. Okay. Interesting. Mike, for Sean. Um, I had a question on height, but I can yeah. wait. Go, 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 go. So, so Steve, um, Gary, and we've we've been talking to a lot of rural residents, and one of their concerns is the visual, the change in the in the landscape in, in terms of what they see. And so, we've we've been wrestling with how to minimize the footprint. And one thing Gary had suggested at our last meeting was, what if we make the if it's technology is available, make the turbines taller. Would that mean fewer turbines? Um, is that a thing that we should be thinking about right now, or is the technology, you know, sort it is, of five hundred feet? Is yeah. it is something that you yes yes should be thinking about. What what I've seen um, more often actually is a, a somewhat stubborn insistence that five hundred feet is the maximum, and the the difficulty there is wind turbines that are below that height are becoming more difficult to procure. So the turbine manufacturers had held to that limit for many, many years, uh, improving efficiency, improving operations, bigger rotors, better performance, but always kind of up to that limit. And that was partly based on either uh, unclear guidance or uncertainty around permitting as it related to aviation. We've moved through that uncertainty at this point. It's well understood. There's more work required, but it's well understood. And now what we're running up against is we're not building two megawatt turbines or two and a half megawatt turbines at most sites. We're building four megawatt turbines and five megawatt turbines. And keeping a machine that size under 500 feet introduces other compromises that are um, worse overall for the owner and for the landowners than going for a taller turbine. And in some comparative photographic studies, uh, not formal, informal, but supporting development that we've done, going back to an old wind farm that had about 350 foot tall turbines and then going to wind farm next door that had 500 foot tall turbines and then going to another wind farm that had 600 foot tall turbines. Visually from the ground, uh, the scale is, unless they're side by side and even then it's difficult, scale is difficult to determine. So seeing an additional 100 feet in height uh, visually is a minimal change from 500 to 600 feet. Uh, that change is minimal. But allowing for uh, taller machines allows for higher megawatt class machines, which allows for fewer machines. So 
a big picture, I think a less impactful wind farm would have fewer total machines that were individually larger spaced farther apart. So 100 megawatt wind farm with 30 machines versus 100 megawatt wind farm with 50 machines. The 30 machine wind farm visually should have on average much less uh, impact. What are the, is there a upper upper uh, height sort of uh, limit, not a limit, but what, what are the tallest wind turbines in uh, uh, available today? How, how high do this, they go? This will likely change, but onshore, I think 700 feet is the tallest I've seen recently. And I think that's because the FAA thresholds are above 500 feet. Every turbine must be lit and every turbine must have two lights. And then above 700 feet now, there's additional mid-tower lighting. Um, so lights partway up the, the turbine tower. Uh, so I think the way it, most projects I've seen are targeting 600, 650 feet if they have the option of tall turbines. Does the new law that just passed in Kansas about the uh, using the radar sonar for lights instead of requiring a light on every tower, does that still apply to the taller towers? Or the uh, radar activated lighting? Yes. Uh, my understanding from working with the FAA on radar activated lighting is that every turbine must be lit. However, they can be unlit if the radar activated system is operational and uh, does not detect airplanes. Right. And, that, and Kansas now has a law that every new turbine and existing ones will have to be retrofitted. So if, say, we allow the taller ones, the 750 feet ones that you said take two lights, do they still have to have the two lights or can they be unlit until the sensing piece of it senses the aircraft? My understanding is they would still need the lights, but they can be unlit until i recommend confirming that uh the faa guidance because i haven't everyone we've permitted with the radar activated system has been below 500 feet as a that's just been the ones we've directly supported so i can't say it with 100 percent certainty but that's my understanding the lighting requirements say which turbines have to be lit which in the case of above 500 feet is every single turbine but they can be deactivated by the the radar activated lighting system okay and and if if we said 600 is the max height or or 600 ends up being what the applicant wants to do that would change our setbacks as well right because we're looking at 1500 today so we'd say you know maybe 1800 at that point is that fair or one one approach would be to base it base the house setback on on turbine height although for setbacks such as like a road or right-of-way setback, I'd recommend scaling it linearly with turbine height. With uh, a home setback, I don't know that a linear scaling makes perfect sense, but a rule of thumb of you know three times total height is one approach you could take. Two and a half times turbine total height, or in some cases, a combination of the two. So at a 600-foot tall turbine, I would, I would consider 1,500 feet to still be sufficient. Hmm. Um, for a 650 foot tall turbine, I'd, I'd probably say the same, but that would probably be the lower limit. Um, 1800 feet is going to be it. Is you'll, you'll what you'll find is above about 1500 feet, 
to six, 16 to 1650 in most land that tends to work. And as you push, it gets more and more and more restrictive in terms of yeah. you know, overall land. So I can't answer that definitively, honestly, without running some representative checks. But 1800 is probably achievable. Above 2000 is almost certainly not. Almost a mile. That's from the house wall. Correct, yes. When you say house wall, do you, are you thinking about any occupied structure, school, or business? Uh... We would typically consider anything. Uh, I don't know if the definition of inhabitable or inhabited structure varies significantly from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, but primarily that is homes, schools, churches. Um, we don't interpret that in the most part of including accessory buildings. So uh, pole barn or similar would not typically be subject to that in my experience. Uh, commercial building as in a, an actual office, yes. Uh, Place where people work or live. Okay, I'll congregate. Well, I mean, I know people who live in their pole barns, basically, but <laughs> <laughs> we, we have not historically uh, seen projects interpret accessory structures like that as being subject to those setbacks. Okay. Interesting. And 1,500, you, your, your experience is that 1,500 feet from property lines in a gridded environment is inherently prohibited. Yes. Okay. So from a, from a non-participating property line, um, I would recommend a setback based on turbine height. And I would recommend a setback based on you know, honestly, my recommendation would be 110% of turbine height for a non-participating property line. And I understand Mike's concern. I, I can't speak directly to it, but it's a fair concern, and that might require you know, additional consultation with people who know more about that than I do, because I know that it's not a concern in my my career that has been raised before. I appreciate that, Mike. But yeah, you might uh, you might check with some of those folks up around Marshall County because there's there's some real time. Um, experience going on right now. Yep. Talked to a guy who said the, 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 they found a piece 2,100 foot was the farthest away that this particular person knew about debris. It sounds like small, small piece of debris, I imagine, that mm, probably Carried caught the by wind. the wind. Yep. Carried in the wind. Yeah, ab absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Back to uh, Flickr, and you were saying that we should really only consider it to a house. We are somewhat unique in Douglas County that we have many, many rural owner operators that are on maybe only five or 10 acres and uh, still doing uh, agriculture-related activities, whether maybe it's growing strawberries, maybe it's growing uh, vegetables that they sell at a farmer's market, and they're not necessarily out there with tractors or implements every day, but they're outside every day, and they're using 100% of their land. If we 
fully consider that to the house, and yet they're <laughs> outside the entire time. Uh, should we not uh, go to their property line, not to the house, for things like flicker? And, and, I, and I get that it's different when it's cropland or farm where you've got, say, 50, 80, or hundreds of acres, but we're, we have had a, a large number of concerned citizens that are in the very small parcel uh, category of five or 10 or 20 acres. So that's a good question because we don't have a whole lot of uh, sites that have dealt with that in my experience. Uh, first thoughts is outdoors is certainly a different case than indoors in terms of uh, the effect. It, it will have no effect on the crops themselves. So I imagine you're more concerned about the people yeah. working. Yeah. And we know, and we know it's we, when we try and compare ourselves to other counties where there are existing farms, there's no doubt we're different. There aren't that many uh, landowners that own a section. <clears throat> it's probably a handful or less than a handful. And, and most of our land here is in the 20, 40, 60, 80, 160 acre uh, plats uh, and not in large amounts under uh, a single person or family's ownership. So we know we're different in that way. Yeah. I mean, I'm used to, like I said, a lot, lot of time in Michigan. I'm used to most fields being 40s or 80s with the rare 160. But I don't have very much experience with five or 10 acre plots being worked more by hand or maybe with small tractors, you know, Kubotas and similar. So that would be a slightly different case. I think I don't want to speak beyond my experience too far here. I do think based on my experience that outdoor flicker impacts are much less significant than indoor. I've experienced both and outdoors is a very different story than indoors. Um, but I don't necessarily have a direct solid sort of experience-based recommendation to give you on if that should be regulated differently and if so, how. Okay. All right, I appreciate the honesty. And that's all we're asked for. We're here for your expertise. So. <laughs> I don't want you to go beyond that point. Of I just, uh, I've got a habit of that because I start you know, thinking in my head about how that might work. So this, unfortunately, honestly, that is not, um, yeah, I'm, I'm used to smaller farms. Smaller is a 40 for me, not a, not a 10. Yeah, so there, it may or may not be you know, classified as a farm in that it's, you know, there for the primary purpose of producing a crop and raising livestock. And it might be where someone lives. I have the same kind of an expectation of, of protection. Yeah, the, the ways <clears throat> to kind of step back to what I have seen historically implemented in practice in law. Um, more than 90% of the time, it's been the residence itself for Flickr. The times it's not been the residence, it's been one of two things. It's been the residence plus a buffer. That buffer typically being 50, 100, or 150 feet. Um, or that residential parcel with some definition of what a residential parcel is. So what qualifies and what doesn't. Um, 
that's the extent of what I, I've seen in practice. I'm going to ask a sound question. I know that that's not your primary expertise, but it's really more just in general what you see in regs. Do you, do you see differences in how people handle uh, pure tone? I don't see much differences in how pure tone regulation is handled. Primarily what I see is that it's effectively prohibited by regulation. Turbines shall not emit a pure tone um, with the definition, I'd have to double check the numbers, being some tone, you know, certain amount in excess of the averages. And again, that's a, a better question for yeah, yeah. for the sound uh, expert. Yeah. <laughs> most wind turbines, most yeah. wind turbines, their primary noise emission is aerodynamic. Uh, the vast majority of, of noise emission is aerodynamic, and that tends to be very broad spectrum. Hey, Steve. So I think um, when we talked to Jeff and Dusty, um, he mentioned that the sound could be heard potentially about, I think, half a mile away. And he said it would sound like a highway in the distance. Is that how you would describe it as well? Or is there a different way you would describe it? Like for somebody that, that is, is going to... Yeah. That is how I would describe it. The two examples that come to mind are a highway in the distance. Um, that's how my uncle described it when he's like, when did they build that highway? Uh, and then his friend said, that's the wind farm. Um, he lives in, on a farm in Iowa, but uh, highway in the distance is, is apt. Uh, the other would be roughly equivalent to a grain dryer at a distance. Um, I know grain dryers only operate part of the year, but it's a similar. They tend to drone more, but when you're a mile away from a set of grain dryers, it's just a sort of, you hear something off in the distance, like a constant sound. It, it tends to just kind of be like that. And it's most noticeable when it's um, windy enough to operate, but not so windy that it's windy on the ground, if you will. Because um, mm -hmm. the wind on the ground, when the wind reaches certain levels, the turbines are not making less noise, but they're it's being masked by the wind you're hearing itself. Uh, so nighttime tends to be particularly where it's audible. When the atmosphere is more stable, winds are calmer at ground level and still high enough to operate at, uh, have for the machines to operate at their height. Steve, are there questions that you thought we would ask that we haven't or the topic areas that you haven't gone into that we should? So on the um, siting side, um, you asked about setbacks. I guess I would bring up, um, with the setback respect, it sounds like you have a decent number of references, but I would uh, bring up utilities setbacks and kind of what requirements you've discussed or been considering for those. And if there's differentiation being made between overhead and underground utilities and differentiation being made between uh, for example, transmission and distribution level uh, overhead lines, or if there's anything unique about Douglas County um, as it pertains to utility lines that needs to be considered. Do you normally see uh, utility <clears throat> um, regulations like uh, connect line or, or transmission lines regulations being 
put into the same body of work as the uh, uh, wind energy regulations? What I typically see is for the wind energy regulations to have a setback section and that setback section to not be terribly long, but to include overhead utilities in setbacks. Uh, so the standard recommendation, and it does vary, but the standard recommendation would be for an overhead utility such as a transmission line, 110% uh, of turbine height from the right of way would be a kind of standard recommendation. <clears throat> That same, overhead. One, that same 110, just like anywhere else. So just pretty much for, for almost anything where you simply don't want like a catastrophic collapse to have a high risk of damaging another piece of overhead equipment, 110% is the baseline uh, recommendation. Underground utilities usually don't get the same level of setback. Um, and that's primarily gas lines in our experience, sometimes oil lines. Uh, and I usually don't see those regulated, but often because if the property has underground gas transmission or oil transmission, they'll almost certainly need to get a crossing permit from the owner of that transmission. Um, there'll usually be a setback agreement as part of that crossing agreement. And the underground setbacks 150 to 250 feet is common, and it's really a no interference, no damage kind of setback. As you're as you're talking about that, um, and so here we have a lot of oil wells. Um, so would the setbacks apply to things like oil wells too? Because these are very small footprints, but you know you don't want. I, I'm assuming you wouldn't want the wind turbine falling on an oil well. Correct. Yeah, so those aren't always addressed, but because you have them, it's probably a good move to address them. And I would expect that same setback from the, the well. Yeah. They're tiny. Probably the well and tanks would be my recommendation right. if they have tanks. Well, the utilities from roads, um, again, 110% from the right of way. You could do more. Uh, 150 would be achievable. 110 would be the base recommendation. And then I would probably identify a criteria for major roads. Uh, again, this is, I'm, I'm going to plead ignorance on the exact nature makeup of your county. But um, in my experience, you know, paved roads that are high traffic should have a setback that addresses uh, some of that risk from having higher traffic, particularly ice throw, particularly in winter, in which case uh, that should either be discussed or like maybe a thousand feet or 1100 feet from the road right of way for major roads. Uh, and that would be maybe a paved county road or a state highway um, and probably like a quarter mile from an interstate, interstate highway. Um, quarter mile would be sufficient pretty much for anything, but that becomes restrictive if you apply it everywhere. Although the houses are going to, for the most part, cover that. Um, gravel roads tend to have light traffic in my experience, unless they're the only roads, in which case you might know which roads have high traffic um, and don't require as much setback because the risk profile is much smaller. Uh, so give you an example, there was a Minnesota project uh, didn't have these setbacks and uh, truck 
driving down the uh, state high, no, U.S. highway, sorry, was struck by ice. The turbine was 400 feet from the road. Uh, it met the road setback requirements, but heavy traffic uh, on a heavily used highway in winter. The alternative is to require some kind of, um, you know, shutdown and icing conditions for safety in proximity to major traffic ways. So there's two ways to address that. One is you know, either a proactive shutdown or the other is, and I believe more appropriate is setbacks for heavily trafficked roads. The minimum will be applicable and safe in almost all conditions and a higher standard for major roads, the, the roads that have the majority of people on them. What is the sort of more common? Is the shutdown the more common or is this? So in my experience, it's not usually, it's not often regulated separately. So it's usually a single setback for roads, but you asked for advice, I'm uh, giving some input. My experience, owners tend to evaluate this. Um, a responsible owner would evaluate this and would identify roads that are expected to have high traffic or known to have high traffic and apply a, a larger standard to those roads. Um, or would implement some kind of curtailment protocol. Oh, I don't have examples. How far is ice thrown? Uh, so there's a theoretical limit, which is very high, but never been observed. And there's an empirical limit, which has been, there's been several studies on this. And I could probably point you to Canadian guidelines on this because they have the most experience. I have to dig that up. But it's... Uh, Based on turbine height and the rotor size, on average, it means it's about, for the current generation of turbines, it's about 1,100 feet. So, I would think wind speed would be a, one of the variables as well. So wind speed is factored into that recommendation. What the studies have shown is um, <clears throat> there's something of a pattern where almost all ice falls directly below the wind turbines as it's shed, but almost all is not all. And then it gets kind of chucked, uh, the ice that's thrown as the machine operates rather than shed as the machine as it stands still. Um, and that follows a pattern, including you know, effects of wind. And that distance recommendation that I mentioned is based on a maximum reserve distance in any direction in any wind condition. Not the maximum theoretical if you do the ballistic calculation don't include you know, air resistance and the fact that these are irregularly shaped objects and, and everything else is a lot higher, but it becomes kind of prohibitive and it's more of a theoretical exercise. So the empirical model is, is what I recommend. Uh, I could, I believe I have a copy of that. I could send that, uh, share that. You'd mentioned the, at the top of this topic about a, a truck that was hit by an ice throw. What, yes. Well, so what's the nature of the damage from something? How big, are the, how big is the ice that's, that's thrown? And what's the potential damage? So that one, the ice was a few feet long, and it was a pretty significant impact on the um, trailer of the truck. So um, I don't know how heavy it was, but it was, it was enough to you know, damage the truck, require repair of the truck and compensation and everything else. So it's a safety concern. As I said, that 
a larger setback, 11, 1200 feet should in, in pretty much any conceivable case be sufficient to protect in that case. Um, and the reason I'm not recommending it for every single road is because, uh, small traffic roads, the likelihood, the intersection, you know, probability of intersection of traffic and something like that is extremely low. Similarly for, you know, cause you might get this question from people who have concerns and they're valid concerns of what about farmers uh, working in the fields? And there's practicalities there. There's the you know, farmers are not likely to be working in the fields in those conditions. You have livestock concerns. That's more of a property damage concern on for better or worse. We can't, can't be perfect on this or we can't have a project at all. Um, so our chief concern is public safety, safety of people. Um, and that's kind of where I focus, I'm focused. Yeah, I was thinking about cattle uh, myself. With, you know, if you've got a herd of cattle out on a, you know, pressed up against the south fence and a north wind. and um, We are not aware of, of any real incidences, and I'm not aware of a single incident of uh, personal injury related to this. And I think that's a, a testament to applying the setbacks appropriately is what keeps people safe. Appreciate you saying that too. As as these towers would no doubt be the tallest thing around. Uh, certainly they are. It will be, yes. In the flats of Western Kansas and in, in the hills that we have here. Is it safe to say that they that each turbine has or should have some type of lightning arrest or protection system built into it? Or Absolutely. are they relying on the fact the fact that they're fiberglass and maybe it doesn't it is no 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 they must uh, <laughs> you they could not get financed without a lightning protection system period um, the reason we're asking would, that is we're we're back to that Marshall County thing we've got conflicting information of some people saying so <laughs> so the, the the way a typical LPS works is there are multiple uh, receptors on the blade whether copper or aluminum. Um, several different points down the blade. And then there's an integrated lightning uh, travel path from those receptors, usually a cable inside the blade. Um, and that path then through brushes or spark gaps through the bearings and down into the tower with the tower itself being used as the conductor down to ground. And then a ground grounding straps between the tower sections, grounding strap to the foundation and a grounding grid built into the foundation and part of the foundation design. Um, the Almost every single turbine on the market will be designed to uh, maximum lightning protection system requirements in the IEC standards that govern wind turbine design. Uh, if that's level one protection, uh, IEC 61400-24, I'm gonna double check that. And, and while you're looking that up, since we're talking about lightning here, another, the only other real natural disaster we deal with here in this part of the country is tornadoes. We know in high winds that the turbines get shut down, but what typical manufacturing specs for today's turbines, what are they built to withstand? Sure. So let me answer the lightning question and then follow up on the, the tornado question. So on the lightning protection um, yes, every turbine is designed to incorporate lightning protection. Um, the IEC standard, if you're curious, is 61400. 
dash 24. So I did confirm that. And uh, that governs the requirements for lightning protection. What we have seen is historically issues where the system exists, the system's in place, but the system has flaws. Flaws that weren't discovered in engineering or in the engineering review, flaws that were discovered in operation. There have also been incidents where insulation was the issue. And that is, um, if you think about the lightning path, the lightning strikes a blade, um, that energy has to come through the blade, which again is the internal electrical cable that's connecting the lightning receptors, which are metal. Then it has to get through the bearing. So it has to get across a uh, you know, bearing surface. And that's usually, like I said, usually a spark gap on the bearings. Um, that's usually not the issue. Gets into the machine itself, uh, through the machine's structure, has to get down to the tower and then has to get down to the ground. And where we've seen the most issues are in the straps. Straps go from one tower section to the next and the towers are painted. So the paint has to be removed where the straps adhere to leave a clear conductive path. So it's a, I've seen installation errors and then I've seen certain turbine models where the system wasn't adequate. Now, uh, we know about this partic primarily not as a permitting, result of permitting, but an operations issue because um, owners demand quality lightning protection systems because a lightning strike is disruptive to generation. It, require, it damages blades, it requires blade repair, it results in downtime, lost money, lost energy. And so my perspective on lightning protection is it's a requirement because it's required for the project to operate the way it's designed to operate. Um, most lightning damage, therefore, when the systems are working correctly, is at the very tip of the blades. And that damage can be repaired in the field relatively easily. So no turbine sold today would not have an LPS. And those, are I, I went, I, those systems are designed to take a direct strike and just keep right on going. Correct. Wow. But um, they're not perfect. Strike over certain, they are designed to certain magnitudes. So depending on the magnitude of the strike, damage can still occur. Um, and uh, for turbines that use carbon fiber in the blades, there's additional risk because carbon is conductive and fiberglass is not. But um, regardless, every machine will have a, a lightning protection system as part of the design. I don't know that I've ever seen it included in an ordinance before. Um, but it would be required by the developer and owner and the financer, the lender in, in any case. And by somebody like me reviewing the project for the lender would, would highlight that if it wasn't, wasn't the case. You mentioned the winds. I mean, if there's, is there anything else on lightning, I guess, before I move and try and answer no, the wind speed no, question? That, that's kind of, I think what we all expect to be responsible. <laughs> well, what, 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 I do have one, one more question on that. Um, it takes the hit, but is there any is there any change or damage done to the blade, even though it can still remain functioning? Does it change any of it or any of its characteristics, like um, how it passes through the air? Is it going to create more sound um, after a hit? Is it going to leave a burn or a tear or a? The answer to that is is yes, it can. It. <laughs> Will not necessarily, but depending on the strength of the lightning strike and the effectiveness of the system in practice, it can. Uh, so what we have seen primarily is um, slight delamination of the 
um, fiberglass layers at the tip of the blade. And what that results in is less efficiency, so less energy. Uh, it results sometimes in whistling or similar, mm -hmm. and it can also result in blackening and, and da surface damage. So the practice there, because you can't design any system that can keep up with anything nature can do, is uh, for that to be a system to protect the blade from structural damage and then for the blade to be repaired in the field as soon as possible after the damage is, is noticed and noted. Okay. So when we think about maintenance of equipment, I, I typically think about maintenance as something that's their responsibility, but I wonder if we need to have, it could be operational, Right. It could be operating just fine, but if it's like like the one that was whistling exactly out in uh, Prairie, Prairie Queen. Queen, yeah, yeah, right. and I don't I don't know from the perspective of of writing the legal requirements exactly how you might address that, but I I think it may be fair to address that. For example, you have a sound ordinance, a sound requirement, including no pure tones, that if a turbine is observed to be doing this because of some damage that it you know, needs to be shut down until that can be repaired or something similar. Owners will hate that, but uh, I mean, it, it needs to be repaired. I guess that's where you have, you have the sound limit. And if the sound limit and, and restriction on pure tones, uh, if that's met, um, it's damaged, it's, it's damaged, it keeps turning. But if it, if it exceeds because of damage, well then I haven't type. seen, you know, most of what I've place. seen related to maintenance and repair is related to, you know, visual condition or abandonment or similar. So uh, you bring up a very good point. I just have limited experience in it, how it, how it being actually written in the, in the law. Okay, back to maximum wind, sustain, maximum sustainable. <laughs> yeah, so... Uh, it will vary by the design conditions because there's a lot of flexibility built into the design standards, but the typical machine is going to uh, operate to probably about 55 miles an hour and um, potentially beyond that up to maybe 70, 75 miles an hour, uh, but at reduced power output. And that's the operational range. And then beyond that, um, sustained maximum wind speed of 10 minutes or more uh, is going to be closer to, sorry, I'm thinking in meters per second, trying to convert that. Um, but for a typical machine, that's going to be probably about 90 to 95 miles an hour uh, for sustained wind events. And that's, you know, 10 minute long average sustained winds is the, and that's typically the governing design. And then for wind gusts, um, add another 25% or so. So 125, 150 miles an hour, depending on the machine, but that's for like a three second quick gust. And so that's structurally important, but it doesn't really address your sort of sustained winds concern. Well, so, F2 or an F3 then? So for, well, for Kansas, for example, um, what we see in the historical record for almost all weather stations and um, satellite data is sustained winds of, you know, about 35 to 38, maybe 40 meters a second 
is typical in Kansas. Um, typical is not a tornado, but I'll get to that in a second. So majority of sites, that's the design criteria is those sustained straight line winds, um, thunderstorm winds, uh, weather system winds. And uh, those typically, therefore, well within the limits of a normal wind turbine. For tornado, direct for tornado, then the winds, um, that's how to, how to word this. Um, it can't be designed for. And because tornadoes are so highly localized, uh, can't be predicted. So in our experience, this is Texas experience here. Um, three or four wind turbines lost in a wind farm and every other wind turbine fine because those three or four were directly hit. Um, does a lot of damage, shreds of blades, tower may or may not be okay. In this case, the tower was okay, but it required you know, structural review before they could replace the blades. Um, turbines that weren't directly hit were completely fine. So in my experience, design, you can't you cannot design a wind turbine for a tornado. And, and I, I, I didn't think you could. It's just I mean, it's, we had the massive one here in Douglas County four years. I know, ago, so it's, I still, know. it's still fresh. It's absolutely a valid thing to consider. I just don't think it's something that be it can be directly addressed through design. Uh, thing that comes to mind is a derecho, and I it comes to mind because it did a lot of damage to my home state, which is Iowa twice in the last uh, five years and sustained winds there of uh, 100 plus miles an hour in some parts of the state. And to my knowledge, the majority of wind farms were able to weather the storm. Okay. And then while, while we're talking about catastrophic events, and this, this is just going to be in your experience, what is, for let's say, a typical operator, what is the typical turn time for let's say let's say a blade snaps off or whatever a blade blade or an entire set of three blades has got to get replaced how long does it take them to do that and how long should it take them to do it a typical turnaround time for something like that to repair and replace is a couple months in my experience and a lot of that's simply scheduling that's okay. uh, getting getting the part and getting the crane and getting the crews. The actual time to replace a blade is one to two days. Okay. Um, but the time needed to do all the work to get it there and get it on site and do the work and commission Build check it out. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there shouldn't be much site work required. Um, temporary turn radiuses for the trucks potentially. Um, maybe rebuilding a crane pad. Um, so some minor civil work, temporary civil work that would require some temporary permits. Um, but otherwise it's almost entirely a scheduling and just parts availability thing. So yeah, a couple months is my experience, something like that. Okay. And, and pretty much no one's going to have blades on hand at site. That's unheard of, except at some older wind farms, um, modern wind farms, there won't, there won't be any spares on site, but there will likely be spares in the region. Okay. Questions about the foundation? Haven't. You want to? Sure. Go ahead. Um, I don't, as staff, I don't usually ask the question, but I thought um, in the conversation we had had some 
uh, questions come up about how deep is the typical foundation, mm -hmm. uh, its makeup, its design, some of those components? Yeah. It'll depend, of course, on the specifics of the site soils and the turbine and the engineer. But on average, typical foundation for one of these machines is going to be 10 to 12 feet deep. Um, it'll be probably between one and two feet thick at the outer edge and about six to eight feet thick in the center. And then it'll have a four to six foot pedestal on top of that. And that's all the specifics of all that's going to depend exactly on the engineering design of the machine but there uh you think of a I mean, you've probably seen pictures before but you think of a like a floor lamp they're very similar in concept um they're based primarily on gravity so for what we've been talking about for these bigger four or five megawatt class machines that's going to be 60 to 70 feet across it'll be circular or octagonal um that kind of conical shape overall thicker in the center thinner at the edges and it'll have um, a couple hundred tons of steel and between four and 600 cubic yards of concrete in it. Um, that's the most common approach. There are other approaches, but that's what the vast majority of sites will use. Are there any other materials besides steel and concrete that are used for any, any purpose at all that uh, will come in contact with the ground? Uh, copper for the grounding. Yes. Do do the does the installation of these pads, the towers, the footings, whatever you want to call them, um, bisect, intersect, cut through the water table. Um, I'm going to make sure I understand your question. So, so let's say we've got we've got wells on people's farms where they're there. Let's say they're at, let's just say for example, fifty to eighty feet, um, and there's maybe some some shallower, some some deeper. So let's just let's just say for example, the water table is at fifty feet below ground. Is anything of that turbine going to cut through that that fifty foot depth? and be sitting in water that could potentially do something so, to other people's water. So depending on your soil conditions, um, it is extremely possible that the turbine will have portions of the foundation below water depth. Mm -hmm. And that's where we see groundwater at one or two feet below soil levels. Uh, that's usually uh, an engineering issue rather than a permitting issue. Um, and what I mean there is the water provides buoyancy, provides uplift, so it requires a larger foundation to counteract that buoyancy. But from a perspective of water quality, I'm not aware of, of any issues uh, historically along those lines. You, you said that the foundation depth is going to be 15 feet deep, one five? Probably not even that much, more like 12 12 or 13. I had it in my head that we were talking about much yeah. larger numbers, like 40, 60, 40, 40 feet, 40 60 feet, feet yeah. deep, but that's, that's just not. The, so there's a different foundation. So I, I, what I described was a, what we call a gravity foundation. Um, and 
more than 90% of turbines in the United States use that type of foundation. And that's what I would expect for Kansas. There's a, well, there's more than one other type. There's one other common type of foundation, which is uh, what they call a tensionless pier foundation. It's a tension. It's essentially two corrugated steel pipes, essentially culverts um, one inside the other with a ring of concrete in between. And then, you know, anchor bolts embedded in the concrete and then uh, backfilled with soil in the center. Those are between 25 and 50 feet deep. Um, their advantage is less concrete, less materials. Their disadvantage is they require very strong soils and knowledgeable installers, and uh, they're very uncommon. So that is another foundation type that, that could be considered, but the vast majority of sites are using the you know, the gravity foundation, which is relatively shallow. And what, what are the circumstances that would cause them to use those different foundations? In my experience, uh, somebody who uses them as a matter of course is most likely to use them. So certain companies, um, they have potential cost advantages, but they have significant operational drawbacks from an engineering perspective that require a knowledgeable and thorough installer so and the design has to be performed by the owner of the patent so it restricts the engineering firms that are willing to deal with that um, so i can't give you a definitive answer on when somebody might or might not use them um, it does require appropriate soils and that's a geotechnical issue that i can't speak to directly for douglas county um, in my experience, it's uncommon. I think that is neat, would need to be handled on a case-by-case -case basis. And I don't know, I've, re I've reviewed dozens and dozens of wind farms and I've seen it on, on less than 10%. Stacey, Sandy, any other questions that you wanna post? There's a good one, Sandy. Do you have, uh, from, from my first sector, do you have any requirements on decommissioning and uh, demolition? In well, we require that, that it be done. <laughs> um, do, quick, quick into spe that. Specifics on, on like what needs to be removed and to what depth has that been considered? We do. Um, we have four foot depth. We also have various decommissioning plans based on single tower versus full farm that include uh, requirements to let us know like to what capacity they're performing. Um, our legal team, legal counsel has been very heavily involved in that part of our requirements. And we've also had some discussion with industry folks to which they say, you know, in Kansas, we haven't really had a de farm decommissioned. So if you have any things to look out for in your sort of experience in Michigan, that would be helpful. Primarily, I mean, we've seen a few wind farms decommissioned, but not too many because majority of majority of wind farms are, you know, 10 years old or less. But yeah, I just want to, you know, the typical requirements we have seen are four foot depth, um, cutting off the pedestal of foundation, but then abandoning the majority of the foundation. Um, basically, anything that sort of affects farming, um, anything that doesn't 
is left in place. And that's a cost balance. It does sound like you've considered that, uh, you know, requiring like a full excavation of the foundation. I've seen it discussed. I haven't seen it implemented. That's prohibitively expensive. It might, might just have people not wanting to even consider it. Um, taking off the pedestal is taking off a ring about 20 feet across down to four foot depth. There's a lot of steel to get through, but it can be done and it's not terribly difficult. Going down to 12 feet, the full foundation depth now are got much, much, much more steel. The vast majority of steel is in there and the excavation costs would be very, very high. So it sounds like at least what you described matches my expectation for what is typically done. But reclamation of construction debris, do you see regulations around that? Uh, yes, but I can't speak directly to how those regulations might be written. What my expectation is, and this is more based on what construction contracts have seen, is that um, everything must be reclaimed uh, from site. So uh, primary things there are how is the topsoil going to be disposed of or reallocated? Um, and I've seen requirements on mixing of topsoil with lower level soils and against mixing of topsoil with real level soils. And I have seen uh, requirements for, you know, what to do with rock, but I haven't seen, but most of that's been in the uh, construction contracts I've seen and, and rather than in, in ordinance or, or other requirements I've seen. Otherwise, uh, restoral to effectively pre-construction conditions and seeding and planting requirements, but I would have to defer to you know, Dusty or others for what those might specifically look like. Steve, did you see what I posted in the chat? Um, back to our I don't on... think I did. Sorry. Well. I didn't see it either. What did you, what did you post, Cece? It was uh, back in the conversation about ice throw. There was a comment of um, that there was a Canadian best practice um, and Steve was like, I'll have to find it. And I wanted to try and see if I could and then see if it was. Yes, that is the source I was referencing. Okay. Yes. yes. Of course. <laughs> if you if you haven't guessed, CC is our local wizard at all things technical. So yes. This is this is a little bit more recent update of what I've seen than my last reference. Um but June 2020 would have been after the last time I updated my local copy. Um, but yes, this is what I was referencing. And the reason I was referencing is simply because uh, icing happens all over the U.S. We see it, but we see it specifically in certain types of climate, particularly wet climate. And uh, Canada, uh, between New Brunswick and Quebec, has the worst in all of North America. Uh, operating wind farms. So they have the most experience with it and, and what to do with it. Hey, Steve, uh, just I don't know that you can give me a specific answer, but in terms of the operations of the wind farm or wind project, um, are there like certain projects that are doing it in a good way? They're good neighbors and you would point, you know, and we could somehow think about that in our regs. Basically, we want uh, them to be responsive to customer complaints, to non-participating, you know, is, is there some kind of like something you could point us to that says, you know, this is, they've done it right. And this County wrote the regs and that's why they're doing it right. Something like that. 
in terms of of owners um i think rather than relying on a specific owner to be good or bad uh, it does make sense to have it addressed in more in the regs so in terms of what i've seen done um requirements for like how to handle sound and shadow flicker complaints so uh, what's required to file a complaint you know must be filed in writing uh, time to respond and and so on are all critical and then kind of some of the other things we talked about and you talked about last week with the sound requirements, shadow flicker requirements and setback requirements, finding that balance um, to where most of the issues can be avoided up front. Um, as far as the language, uh, gosh, uh, who does it best? I mean, I've had good experience with uh, the Michigan model ordinance, simply because I've got a lot of experience with that ordinance. So a, a county, for example, that implemented a version of it that has worked is Huron County. How do you spell that? In the thumb, H-U-R-O-N. Okay. Uh, their ordinance should be available online, although I think they'd have updated it. But, um, but primarily, I think they're the one I've worked with most closely on that aspect of things when i was working in iowa we had a little bit less uh issues and all the wyoming projects it was never ever even came up effectively thank you i want to be respectful of time steve we just hit that five o'clock mark um i am free to answer as many questions as you have for about the next 45 minutes, if you need them. I'm just about at the end of my list. <laughs> yeah. CC Mike, anything else? Sean? I'm good. I think I'm good. I, I really appreciate the information today. This has been invaluable, Steve. Thank you so much. You're, you're welcome. Um, if there's you know, anything else that Black and Beach can help you with, uh, Please do reach out. I know Dusty's kind of was at least leading our, our efforts on, on our side and helping get this mm -hmm. call set up. But yeah, I'm just I'm looking through some of the other questions you had near the end. I did maybe just say a few more things. You might have yeah. addressed most of this in your last uh, last discussion, but I know we were talking about failure modes and, and lightning damage and, and similar things. And Mike brought up some concerns I hadn't considered before. And I do appreciate that, Mike. Um, Bigger picture, you know, if we're talking about if, if, if you do get questions or you're interested in, you know, what types of turbine failures do we typically see? Uh, the majority yeah. are just reliability issues and the reliability issues are entirely financial. Um, other things, though, you know, oil spills and grease spills, they happen. So uh, I have sometimes seen language regarding cleanliness um, requiring owners to address because, uh, for example, if the yaw ring of a turbine, which is the ring that the machine sits on the top of the tower that lets it turn to face into the wind. If that leaks grease, it doesn't affect safety and it doesn't affect uh, operations for the most part, but it looks terrible. Um, where you see a bunch of black streaks coming down the outside of yeah. the tower. Yeah. Um, similarly with uh, pitch rings uh, or sorry, pitch bearing grease leaking, 
or main bearing grease leaking. So I've seen occasionally just cleanliness requirements or, you know, with, I can't give you specifics on that, but if, if you do have examples that you can pull in, that's something to consider just from a, a kind of a community relationship perspective, because an ugly wind farm that's generating is generating, but no one likes looking at it. Uh, if they're, if they're clean, at least they're, they're less, uh, Usually considered you can't hide them, but if you're gonna if you're gonna see them, they might as well look nice. They might as well look nice, exactly. Um, you know, otherwise, you know, things like actual risk of oil spills and oil containment that should all be handled by the permit process and just permit requirements and system design. So I don't have much to add there, and don't have any recommendations for how the ordinance might be addressed. But in terms of failure modes, otherwise, um, the lightning damage on blades we discussed previously on this call is very common uh it is minor um so that's more of a we talked about requirements for repair similar actual blade failure is less common um one to two percent of machines over the life of the machines enough to be you know annoying for an owner but not enough to you know let's say be like a, a significant risk for safety or, or anything like that and that usually takes the form of like a whether it's caused by a lightning strike or something else, uh, kind of a banana peeling of, of the blade or, or similar. Uh, or sometimes, honestly, it's caught by the turbine um, control system noticing issues with vibration, shut down and then discovered and replaced before it ever becomes like an actual catastrophic failure. Other things like gearbox failures and generator failures are, are not... Uh, things to be concerned from, about from a siting setback or operations perspective. They're just a, an operational and a money issue. Um, so the most dramatic turbine failures tend to be the full collapse failures that I'm sure you've seen pictures and videos of. They're almost always called caused by some failure somewhere along the line of the turbine speed control safety chain. So the turbine uh, safety chain from start to finish should have multiple and does have in, in all modern designs, multiple redundant uh, systems to detect and mitigate uh, overspeed. And uh, that includes obviously RPM sensors at the uh, rotor side, RPM sensors at the generator side, because there's you know, the gearbox in between. So there's quite a difference there. Uh, includes a redundant braking system. So what I mean there is a primary brake of the wind turbine is the rotor, it's the airfoil. Uh, if it turns, if even one of the three blades can turn fully out of the wind, the rotor will slow and stop. Um, so to make that possible, each blade has an independent uh, backup system. So there's an electric motor or a hydraulic motor or hydraulic ram to turn the blade, each blade in a modern turbine has an electric backup battery or supercapacitor or a hydraulic uh, pressure accumulator so that in the event of some failure, it's able to turn out of the wind. That accounts for almost all machines, but it is not 100% effective because you have probably seen photos and video of machines that have collapsed. When that happens, the most common thing that happens to the turbine is spinning faster than it's designed to spin the blades then um, deflect more than they're designed to deflect. And the usual result of that is a tower strike. So it's fiberglass blade hitting the tower. And if you think of a soda can, it's a lot thicker, of course, but 
its strength, just like that of a soda can, depends on it being whole. So the, the blade strikes the tower and collapses a portion of the tower wall. All the strength is gone at that point. Um, so what most commonly happens then is it folds in half on top of itself. It's rare, but it's common enough that everyone knows about it. But just to just give you some perspective, we're not aware of a single injury of a member of the public in the United States from this. We are aware of several deaths to operators in the United States. So maintenance um, personnel. Um, the way to address it in practice, if it's happening, is uh, evacuation to a safe distance. Um, so that's an emergency systems response thing. So that requires that there's you know, proper emergency action plan uh, for the owner and communication with the public, with emergency services and so on, which I imagine that your advisors are, um, you know, have better understanding of how that should be written than I do. But I just want to, in, in practice, uh, I'm addressing this simply because it comes up in public discussions. People are worried about it. How do we stay safe? How do we keep people safe? Um, like anything, it's an unusual operations mode. The setbacks we described, we discussed, those distances um, should protect public safety uh, combined with if an incident's actually occurring, getting farmers out of the field, if they're in the field, uh, communicating with people, having some kind of you know, a quality emergency action plan that's actionable. Um, but gosh, they're uncommon and thankfully uncommon. So just you have a little... <laughs> I don't know if that's super helpful for you or if I just added worries to your plate, but I imagine somebody will ask about it if you have public hearings. That's just what I want yeah, to address. Yeah, thank you for that. That's good. And thought about how to notify hmm. people. In what I've seen and what I have seen in practice, and I've seen, you know, issues with you know turbine collapse and i've seen issues with fire but i've seen in practice in both cases um if it happens at night and no one sees it then nothing happens for better or worse and that's where we rely on our setback requirements to protect people that's what one of the that's the main reason for setbacks is safety um otherwise if it is observed uh you know communication blocking off you know certain roads the evacuation distance isn't huge um but you know half a mile would be typical if it's actively occurring and then for fires i know it was on your list of questions you might have addressed it already last week but in our experience for the fire it's a uh, kind of the same thing establish a perimeter and have fire control on hand for grass fires and otherwise the turbine will that's the, that's the primary risk is not turbine fire causing damage on its own, but spreading to grass right. and creating a wildfire. Yeah, we picked up on that. Although, uh, oh, go ahead. You were going to say something. I was going to say, although I've seen more turbines damaged by grass fires than grass fires caused by turbines, <laughs> lightning strikes are much more common cause of grass fires. Hey, hey Steve, so... So we write these regulations, you know, in the next six months or something like that. Um, how often do you think we would need to revisit them? Is this something, is the technology evolving? Um, 
so quickly that, you know, what we write today may need to be looked at again in a few years, or do you think? Um... If the ordinance is written primarily with the perspective of uh, setbacks based on turbine size, rather than on fixed distances and the uh, ordinances around sound and shadow flicker are written on decibels and, and hours then for the most part it should be broadly applicable into the future the question for revisiting would maybe be more on our industry norms changing or are there significant changes to technology trends or design trends that would mean that what would have be most common, I would say, is that your ordinance would be seen as permissive and your neighbors would be seen as restrictive. Um, I would say, I would expect, you know, if you wrote something in the next six months and, and it was finalized, that it would probably be applicable for at least five years and should probably just be reviewed regularly as is this still you know, consistent with what we're seeing in the industry norms. Uh, so every couple of years, maybe a, a review and a, things look good. But what I've seen, you know, for the ones I've seen revised, it's every 10, five years, every 10 years. Because so, in the last, gosh, I've been doing this 17 years, there's been massive, massive changes in technology and norms in the last 10 years. There's been massive changes in technology size in the last five, but very few changes in norms. So for a well-written ordinance, if you'd written it in 2015, I would expect a project today uh, compliant with a well-written ordinance to still make a lot of sense if it was reviewed on its merits specifically. What else, team? Steve, thank you. You're welcome. You've been brilliant, man. Very much appreciate you. And well, glad, glad I was able to help and uh, appreciate the the questions and some perspectives I hadn't considered. It's important that I that I hear those. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you. Mike, take care. Right. Yep. Have a good all evening. Right, thank you all.